Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. Whew. We have quite the conversation today. I am interviewing Emily Elizabeth Anderson, and Miss Anderson is going to talk to us about her time within IBLP, her time within ATI. We talked to another person just a few weeks ago, Lindsay Williams, about her time in uh, in the cult. Um, you know what what got me interested in this? Of course, I've talked to other people in in cults before. But I watched the Amazon Prime documentary, Shiny Happy People. What uh, kind of got this cult, uh, I guess, famous is this is the this is the group that the Duggar family was in. I, I believe that uh, a good chunk of them still are, but there's a lot that have moved on, wrote books, all that kind of stuff too. Uh, but Shiny Happy People kind of talks about just the terrible things that happen within IBLP, which is the Institute of Basic Life Principles, uh, just the, the teachings that uh, were frankly awful. Bill Gothard, who ran this cult and had over two million different people come to his, uh, his seminars. Emily grew up in this cult. Her family actually joined it when she was a, a preteen, uh, but they had always been in a fundamentalist conservative Christian household. They decided to join ATI, which was the homeschooling side of things, and things progressed from there. This is a a, a powerful conversation, um, but it also comes with some some trigger warnings, and and that is that we are going to talk about sexual abuse sexual abuse with children. Emily was a, a, uh, a survivor, still is a survivor of, of uh, adolescent sexual abuse. We're going to talk about how IBLP's teachings affected her, her life when it comes to, to that too. Her father was, was abusing her and IBLP's teachings said that you should thank your abuser because it's bringing you closer to God. If you remember my conversation with Lindsay, we talked about that extremely harmful teaching, extremely just sickening teaching. And, um, you know, so, so talking to Emily about, you know, how it felt to, to have to write letters to her abuser, write letters to her father, basically thanking him for the things that he was doing is just appalling and it's something that uh it's hard to put any words to and and that's something we're going to talk a little bit about in this uh in this first part of the conversation this is going to be two parts for two reasons one there's just so much to cover we we talked for you know about an hour and a half and i I don't want to pack that much into one conversation um so the next part will come out next week but the other part is this is just a really tough topic and it's one that i feel like that uh you know, just to, to uh, I guess, listen to for, you know, an hour and a half is, is tough. It was tough for me to, to listen to it, um, you know, while while she was talking. And I just, I, I'm so thankful that she decided to, to share her story with us and, and you know, had the, the courage and just uh, just the, um, you know, the, the awesomeness that she is that, that she decided to come on because she doesn't want other people to, to deal with something like this. So this conversation today, we're going to talk about how she 
uh, her family joined IBLP, how they joined ATI, a little bit about bo what both of those are. If you haven't already listened to uh, my interview with Lindsay Williams, um, you know this is you can definitely still listen to this because we kind of go over a little bit of that. Uh, we're going to talk about you know her her home life, how she emulated the Duggars and uh, the 16 kids in counting world, and and until things develop out part there, we're going to talk about how you know this group, this cult was so powerful that. Even after all these things that was happening to her, it still took a long time. Um, she is 30 years old now, and it still took until she was 25, um, and a lot of these things happened to her, uh, that she was still very much a, a part of, of uh, the organization, still believed a lot of these things. So we're going to kind of talk, like I said, early days. We're going to talk about you know what some of those terrible teachings, the impacts they had on her, both mentally, uh, physically. There was a, a huge physical impact Two, when it comes to her health, she she started battling Crohn's disease and had a, a absolutely terrible version of of that. Um, she still suffers from that, but but luckily not as bad because she's removed herself from some of those situations that were triggering some of the some of the worst parts. So I uh, I think that you're gonna you really learn a lot this week and. Just when I think that, you know, it, mentally myself kind of reached the point where I was just almost just kind of crushed listening to some of it, then we're going to take a break, <laughs> kind of a little, little bit of a, uh, little bit of a, a breather, and, uh, and we're going to pick up next week where, you know, we're still going to talk about the, you know, getting out of, of IBLP. We're going to talk about her experiences firsthand with Bill Gothard and the, you know, the abuse she suffered under him as well. But then we're going to start talking about the amazing things that she's been doing since then. She, during, I mean, the, the dates will are kind of all over the place here, but during, um, you know, the latter parts of her times in IBLP, she joined a lawsuit against Bill Gothard. We'll talk about that and the outcomes there. We're going to talk about leaving and what that's been like. We're going to talk about the amazing organization she's created called Thriving Forward that helps other people uh, in abusive situations get out of that, definitely when they were coming from a cult. So this week's tough. Next week is partially um, you know, tough, but, uh, but we're going to get some amazing things. Emily is such an amazing person, and uh, I, I think that you're really going to want to stick around for, for this weekend uh, and next to just hear her awesome story and, uh, and, just, uh, and just the courage that she has to share day in and day out with, with people because I'm not the only person she's ever talked to about this, of course. So I think you're going to really, really learn a lot this week. Here is Emily Elizabeth Anderson. I'm here today with Emily Elizabeth Anderson. Miss Anderson, how are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. Hardest question of the evening. Just introduce yourself. Yeah. So I'm, as you said, Emily Elizabeth Anderson. I uh, am a writer. I'm a speaker. And I founded Thriving Forward, which is a uh, ministry where I work as a domestic violence advocate. Um, and I help women that are in uh, dangerous, toxic relationships to be able to escape safely hopefully. And um, I write uh, pretty frequently um, on my social media platforms about um, the dangerous ideologies that I grew up in and what is the healthy alternative. Absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to unpack all of that. We're going to talk kind of towards the end about Thriving Forward, because I think that's really an amazing thing you're doing there. But let's, let's start with, with kind of the last thing you talked about, and that is 
kind of the ideologies that you you grew up in. I want to maybe even start before that and just talk basically about your your childhood and, and growing up. I know that there was several different por- points in it, whether it was health related or whether it was family related that were were not uh, necessarily super easy. So talk uh, at your comfort level a little bit about that. Yeah. So I was raised in uh, a Christian home. We went to traditional Baptist churches. Um, I went to a private Christian school from first through fourth grade. And then my mother decided to pull me out of that school and to start homeschooling me in fifth grade. And uh, that is when we joined a program called ATI or the Advanced Training Institute. And the uh, ATI program is a program that's underneath the umbrella of an organization called IBLP or the Institute in Basic Life Principles. And that was started by Bill Gothard. We didn't know it at the time, but IBLP is a cult and um, meets like so many hallmarks (laughs) of what you would find in a cult setting. Very, very dangerous. Um, I'll go into my story later, but I I was basically abused by Bill Gothard, um, the cult leader. Uh, and so that was throughout my teenage years and in, in my early 20s before I left that ideology. But prior to joining ATI or even just right around the time that we joined, um, I was also being abused by my father. So I uh, am a survivor of child sexual abuse and um, other forms of domestic violence, verbal, emotional, spiritual, you name it. I've lived some form of it for the most part. Um, And because of all of that abuse that I was experiencing as a young child and as a young teen, um, my body developed Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disease of the digestive system. Um, And for me, I know I, I developed the symptoms when I was 11, just months after I had started to be sexually abused by my father. And I know that I developed that disease just as a direct result of the stress that my little 11 year old body couldn't comprehend. It couldn't, couldn't make sense of. So it sent my immune system into a tailspin and uh, eventually got that diagnosis at 13. I'm now 30 and I still deal with very severe Crohn's disease. It's it's so much better now that I'm not living in an abusive home anymore. When I was a teenager, I mean, I had the worst case of Crohn's any doctor had ever seen. I was 73 pounds and 5'4", and I almost died multiple times, lived in and out of hospitals. So yeah, I'm living proof that emotional abuse can kill you. It's very devastating to the body. Yeah. And I, I've heard you talk about that before, which is a, a powerful thing. Cause I don't think a lot of people really think of that, that, you know, obviously we know about PTSD. We know about some you know, mental aspects of, of trauma, but the actual physical aspects and, and the things that, you know, the, the tolls that it takes on bodies are, is, is a real thing too. And I think there's a quite a bit of science to back that up, but it's not something we really think too much about. Yeah, uh, I have a piece that I've written, um, posted a few times before that the title is emotional, or I'm sorry, yeah, emotional abuse is physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Because the effects of it have 
physical consequences more than just autoimmune diseases, but so many other physical illnesses can be tied to uh, emotional abuse. So it is a form to me, uh, emotional abuse turns into physical abuse with its uh, just the natural consequences of living in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to kind of just for the the listeners that they will have heard one other person that has uh, you know, grew up in IBLP and then also the ATI world. But in your own words, let's start with IBLP. Talk about a little bit about that, what, what that was, because another thing I think that people get confused is it wasn't a, a church on its own. There's people that were, they were in their own individual churches. And this was kind of the last person described it as a booster pack, which I kind of thought was, was funny. So um, talk a little bit about what IBLP is or, or was. Yeah, so they presented themselves as an international ministry. They had their own publishing company. So they produced a lot of books that were centered around Bible study, um, instruction manuals, essentially for how to be a better Christian, um, because it was all very much centered around what you do. Um someone who was raised in the church will know this term as legalism. Um, And so we basically had to earn God's love and approval by our actions. And if we did all and all enough of the right things, so, you know, if we prayed enough and if we wore the right clothing and we listened to the right kind of music, then God would love us more than somebody who didn't. Uh, So that's what they're, that's, that's the core of everything that they taught. But then, as I said before, they had a smaller section called, ATI or the Advanced Training Institute. And that was a homeschool curriculum. Um, Their main curriculum for that was called the Wisdom Booklets. If you've seen the documentary Shiny Happy People, you'll um, see examples of what was actually taught in those wisdom booklets. It can be incredibly messed up, especially when you consider that these wisdom booklets were designed to be taught in like one room schoolhouse style teaching. So um, in IBLP, birth control was considered a sin. Not even just taking contraception, but even just abstaining would be considered a sin because you are not trusting God with the, as they would call it, the opening or closing of your womb. And so most IBLP families had a large amount of children. Sometimes you would have over a dozen children, all ranging from, uh, you know, infant or toddler age, all the way up to high school age. And the wisdom booklets were designed where the family would gather together the littlest ones all the way up to the um, late teen age, and they would all be learning from the exact same material. Very ineffective, (laughs) very messed up when you think about what you were teaching these little, little kids. Um, Some very egregious things in there, a lot of racism, a lot of focus on sexual purity or impurity and what that would look like. So much body shaming. Uh, And so that, yeah, that was our homeschool material. Um, Yeah, I think in the documentary, someone said we weren't learning math, we were learning slut shaming. And yeah, that's true. Sometimes it did happen. (laughs) Yeah. So what I mean, what is your, I guess, relationship with your homeschooling just because 
you know, we just talked about how it wasn't really teaching you the basics and, and what you, you needed, but that is the schooling that you had, at least for a, a period of time. I don't know whether you ever went back to, to traditional school, if that's kind of how you graduated, but you know, th- that's a conversation I've had before where, you know, it, it sounds like, okay, these people had no idea what they were doing when they set up these books. They didn't know how to, to teach, but it's almost, if you think about it, it's the exact opposite. They knew exactly what they were doing and they were setting you up for, to not really know how to navigate the world yourself and be trapped in it. So that just makes it even harder. So I just wonder what, I guess you're, do you feel like you're kind of, uh, I don't know, you were, I don't want to say left behind when it comes to education, but do you feel like you were kind of cheated given the education that you received? Yeah. So there's a wide variety. I count myself as luckier than most mm-hmm. where some families only used the wisdom booklets. Maybe they would use wisdom booklets and then a really, really dry math book. And that was about it. Um, and just my heart goes out to those individuals because they really were receiving like probably the equivalent of a first grade education. Um, and that's about it. And for me, my mother was actually a high school teacher before she had kids. So she did have a higher standard of education than a lot of other IBLP families. So the way we did it in my family was the wisdom booklets were just one hour a day. They were our Bible study in the morning. And then I had six to seven other hours of um, a a well-rounded education. It was still sheltered in the sense of we were a very um, conservative fundamentalist Christian family, but I was still learning about, you know, I had chemistry and algebra and biology and history and all of Mm -hmm. that, um, which I feel again, like really lucky to be able to have experienced that. But even then with that, I did not know how to function as an adult by the time that I got out of IBLP, which I didn't really leave that mindset until I was in my mid twenties. I was still living at my mom's home. And that is a a foundational teaching in IBLP that we can go into more in a bit, but that daughters were instructed to not leave home until their wedding day. And sometimes daughters didn't get married till quite a bit later on. And so that's sometimes in these IBLP families, you have daughters that are 35, 45 years old, even still living in their parents' house. They've never had a job outside of sometimes like the work in their family ministry or something like that, but they've never had a job outside the home. They don't really bring in income. Um, They don't know how to do things. Like they don't know how to file taxes. They don't know how to just do regular adulting things because daughters are told that their only purpose in life is to be mothers and homemakers. So we learned how to cook and sew and keep house and take care of babies, (laughs) but Mm. that's about it. And so when I was in my mid twenties, I still didn't have my driver's license. I had to get my driver's license and I, you know, purchased my first car on a loan, which is terrifying and got my very first job as a house cleaner. Cause I didn't know how to do anything else and had to get my own apartment. And that was like a mega crisis, like midlife crisis thing for me happening in my mid twenties where I had no, I was do- no idea what I was doing, terrified the heck out of me to try to grow up 
And yet I was doing this so much later in life. Like I should have learned these skills when I was a teenager. Absolutely. And I guess just to kind of understand the ideology, you talked about how, you know, some, some women were still in the home at 35, 40 years old because they hadn't gotten married. But then earlier you talked about how kind of a, a, a purpose is just to have children. So well, I guess what's the purpose when it comes to once they, once people get older that, you know, aren't t- traditionally childbearing anymore in the churches there's still a place for them to get married if they're not having children. I just wonder exactly how, how that was, how that was determined if you couldn't leave the house otherwise. Right. Um, I have seen several women that got late, that they got married later. They were still living at home until they were in their mid forties and then finally got married. And at that point, most of them were not able to conceive children. And so they just, they all consider it part of God's plan of, oh, well, I guess God never intended them to have children because it took 45 years to finally find a spouse. And I have, of course, absolutely no problem with someone staying single for a long time if that's what they want to do. But what breaks my heart is these women that they want to get married at 18. Like they just can't wait for it because they've been told this is their whole life is to be able to get married and to have children. And yet the requirements for a future spouse are so unachievable many times. And the fathers in IBLP are who control marriages. Um, It's kind of a form of arranged marriage where the father has to approve of the spouse first. And so a lot of times when a young man shows interest in a woman, of course, the the man can only show interest first. Women are not, not allowed to express interest. If they have interest, they have to keep it secret and they have to just pray about it. So if a young man decides to make the first move, he can't go to the young lady that he's interested in. He has to go to the father first. And the father essentially dates the young man for a time and drills him again and again to try to figure out like, oh, are you really suitable for my daughter? And once they finally get permission from the father, then that young man can move on. Uh, and, and, and approach the woman, but it is such a strict system. Sometimes that father will not give his blessing until his daughter is in her mid forties. It's, it's really tragic, honestly. Yeah, it's, it certainly is. And I want to kind of get back to, you know, the, the ATI teachings and the, the wisdom booklets, because the thing that kind of strikes me with, with those as well, with you talking about it being a cult earlier, that, that is a very, one of the big cult-like things with that is, I believe with the wisdom booklets, you're not supposed to show it to anybody else. It is, you know, it's it's not to be shared outside of the, uh, you know, out of the program, which that kind of screams cult because if, if other people can't see it, it means that you may be teaching something that uh, is a little wild if you need like a, you know, a background to be able to to look at it. So I thought that was really interesting. That's That's true, right? Yes, that is, um, particularly with the basic seminar, which was Gothard's introductory seminar to anything IBLP. It wasn't just tied to ATI, but he was doing basic seminars back in the 60s when IBLP was founded. Um, And it would be like a whole weekend seminar. He would pack out an entire stadium. I mean, almost 3 million people have gone to the basic seminar since it started. And so he would pack out these stadiums for three or four days and um, have 
hours and hours of teaching. And then you would get this booklet. We called it the red booklet because it was red. Um, And you would get it. And that would be like all the diagrams and everything that's in the notebook. And then you would take notes in it. And we were told to not show that material to anyone, but they had to go to the seminar and actually see it in person or watch the video recording of it. Because sometimes they would like record them and then churches would host a seminar over the weekend where they're showing the recordings. And yeah, that was the only way that you could see the contents inside of the red notebook because they wanted you to have the full brainwashing experience where you're actually hearing the teaching straight from Bill. Because if you're just looking at the material by itself, you can see the red flags. Mm. But when you get sucked into that environment and that atmosphere and you are hearing Bill recite verse after verse after verse faster than you can look those verses up and realize they are totally taken out of context, then you get really sucked into it. And you think, oh my goodness, this guy is a modern day prophet. That's what we saw him as. We called him the modern day apostle Paul Hmm. because we thought that he was essentially the godliest man on the planet. And, um, I mean, we have this idea of like, well, sure, he's a sinner, but he doesn't really sin because he's just so perfect. (laughs) And we thought he got revelations directly from God. The other person I talked to kind of talked about how being in and out of kind of believing it. She was a lot of times she was able to kind of realize this is this is kind of crazy. But at the same time, she was kind of a part of it, too. During, you know, these early years, were you gung ho in it? Was was there ever times that you thought, oh, this is a little strange or, you know, was, you know, just the, the, the process and the brainwashing able to, uh, to, I guess, to consume you at that point? Yeah, I was in it hook, line, and sinker, mm-hmm. especially because the churches that we were involved in prior to getting in, uh, into ATI were very fundamentalist. Um, and so the teaching was super familiar. So we didn't join ATI until I was 12, but I was essentially born into the system. Last thing I want to ask you about kind of childhood before we get get to a little bit more with, uh, I guess, Bill Gothard is, you know, Shiny Happy People, the documentary that I I first met you on is um, uh, obviously it talks about IBLP and then it also has a, a large component when it comes to the Duggar family. And I know that's something, you know, I, I think they're kind of the most famous people that have came out of, uh, you know, out of out of that uh that system. I, I'll keep wanting to say church, but not necessarily church. You looking back, I, I know that a lot of times with IBLP, people d- didn't watch TV, but I know you kind of emulated them or, or wish that your your family was the, the Duggar family. Talk a little bit about that. I think that kind of, this is an interesting thing, given that we now see that there's a lot, there's a lot of problems there too. So. Yeah. So you're right. In general, TV was highly discouraged in IBLP. My family was a little bit more lax on that. We did have a television. We even had cable. Oh, my goodness. Um, And I remember the day like it was yesterday. I remember exactly where I was. And I we had on the Discovery Channel. And um, I saw the original like pilot program for the Duggar family show. And I think it was 14 children and pregnant again. And I saw this like homeschool family. I'm like, they look like me. Like they have the long hair and they have the long dresses and they have a bunch of kids. And then I saw that they were 
studying the wisdom booklets around the dining room table. And I called my mom in from the kitchen. I'm like, oh my goodness, this family's studying the wisdom booklets. They're an ATI family. So I knew of the Duggars from that first um, TV special. And um, I would see them, you know, every year at the conferences. Um, Sometimes the TV crew would be there too, um, the film crew. The Duggars, they were what is known in ATI as a model family. Jill Duggar wrote this, uh, wrote about this concept in her book that she recently published a few weeks ago. Um, And a model family was just a family that emulated the principles of IBLP so perfectly. They were always brought up on stage uh, during one of the annual conferences. Um, In addition to studying the wisdom booklets every morning, all the families got together once a year for a big annual conference where we'd have like a week of teaching live. And so, um, you know, model family, there was a handful of them and they would be brought up every year to talk about, uh, they would like do a singing special or they would um, give their own lectures on how they discipline their children or how they implement the IBLP teaching into their family life. And then uh, IBLP would usually um, do something to bless the family. They would, I remember one family one year was given a 15 passenger van because their old one broke down. So IBLP got a used van for them and gave it to them at the conference. And everyone's like standing and cheering about, oh, how amazing God is and all of that stuff. So you looked at these model families and you just saw these children who acted so perfectly and were so called and had on their bright smiles. And you just looked at that and thought, oh my goodness, I'll never be that good. Like I can never be that disciplined and that scheduled and that organized. And those moms are such super moms. And now when you come out of that world and you, you you have a better understanding of what was really going on behind the scenes and you realize that the children of the model families were really the ones that were being, um, they had their spirit beaten out of them the most, I would say. I don't want to just automatically say they were all being physically abused or something like that. But in general, those children were so quiet and compliant for a reason, um, because the home was just so incredibly strict. It was not a healthy environment for children. Yeah. And I don't think that's uh, too far of a, a stretch to think. I, I believe, was it, I, I think it was in Jill's book or, or, or somebody's book when it comes to the Duggar family. I think even the mother talked about, you know, the, I think it, what's it called? Blanket training and just mm-hmm. teaching, teaching the kids basically just complete obedience. So, I mean, that is just, I mean, that's almost an animal tactic, just breaking the will of, of people. So I, yeah, yeah I, I, I feel for, for a lot of that. And you, you talked about how you know, it took many years for you to get out of, uh, out of that mindset. I think you said you were, you were 25. So that was, that was only five years ago. That was after a lot of things that, you know, came out when it comes to the Duggars. So I just wonder, given that you had emulated them and put them on a pedestal for, for so long, given that it wasn't that many years ago, you know, I just wonder at that time, what were you thinking? Did you think, oh, this is not, there's something else going on that this is the media or were, were, were you shattered by some of this stuff that was happening? Um, I believe the first big media break with the Duggars regarding Josh sexually abusing his sisters. I think that came out the year 
that I joined the lawsuit. Hmm. And so I'll explain that more later, but I ended up in 2015 joining a lawsuit with 18 other plaintiffs where we sued IBLP, the board and Bill Gothard um, regarding sexual abuse and then covering up sexual abuse. And um, so when I joined that lawsuit in 2015, I was still fully stuck in the belief system. I knew that Bill had abused me, but I didn't realize that it was the organization was a cult. And um, I still believed in all the principles that were taught. Um, and so I think it was just about six months later, I think when everything came out with Josh Duggar for the first time, and I was still in the mindset, I remember defending Josh Duggar. And I remember having a conversation with my mom and being like, this is so crazy. They're saying he molested his sisters. And that's so not true. Like, I totally took that stance, which I'm horrified to think that I did that. Um, but that's just, I was so brainwashed still at that point. And my deconstruction wouldn't come until like the next year or two after that. And uh, I'm still learning and growing every single year. But yeah, it's amazing to think that wasn't too many years ago when I really thought that Josh Duggar wasn't all that bad. <laughs> yeah, I think that just shows the the power of you know of this this cult that you were you're a part of. So you talked about joining a lawsuit that you know I, I've continuously made you kind of jump ahead based on my questions. So let's go back to Bill Gothard. Let's talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously there was there was things that happened to, to make you join a lawsuit. I know you, you know, we talked about how Bill Gothard had a lot of different followers. Over three million different people have came to his basic seminar at some point, but you had a little bit more of a, I guess, a closeness to him at one point. Uh, I think I don't know whether he came to you. I think the good word maybe is preyed on you at some point. Um, but let's talk at your comfort level about, uh, I guess you and, and Bill Gothard and, and some of the things that, that happened. Yeah. And actually something else I wanted to bring up briefly um, sure. in what we were discussing a few minutes ago, I was talking about the role that daughters were told to play. And I would love to also explain a little bit on what were expect what was expected of the young men. Sure. Um, of course, I only have my experience as a woman, but in general, for the young men, um, any amount of higher education was discouraged. College was considered evil. And so a lot of times IBLP families had their own family businesses that were some kind of trade work. Um, or it would be like lawn care or um, tree service companies or construction. So some sort of trade that they could learn and pass on. And so a lot of times while the girls were taking care of their younger siblings and they were um, basically being little mothers as young as 10, 11, 12 years old, they would start taking on this motherly role. Uh, while the girls were doing that, the boys were learning their father's trade work. And so a lot of times because these families were all self-employed, and they had so many children that they were struggling financially. So a lot of times those teenage boys were putting in a considerable number of work hours every single week 
helping their father. So they became essentially employees of their father. They were never paid, of course. This was just considered part of being in the family. Um, and so they would be learning construction as a teenager or something like that. And um, they were expected to continue on with the family business or to start their own business within that trade rather than to go to college. Um, and then there was also this expectation um, where men were told that they should, once they can't, once they do start their own business and they start earning their own income, they were told that they should live at home like the girls and that they should save every penny that they make. Um, and by the time that they get married, the ideal was to have saved enough money to buy a home in cash for their new wife, which is just outrageous because, Usually these couples would marry pretty young, sometimes as early as in their late teens or their early twenties. And these young men were expected to, you know, already have at least 150 grand in the bank where they could just drop it and pay full cash for a house. Cause you're never supposed to go in debt. Uh, so as, as bad as it was for the girls growing up in the system, I mean, the boys had it really bad too. The men were, had so much pressure on them and had very, dysfunctional childhoods as well. So I just wanted to put that out there too. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my experience with Bill started when I was 13 and I was at a conference. He spotted me. Um, this was a common tactic for him. Bill has had countless allegations against him for levels of sexual grooming, sexual harassment, sometimes assault. Um, and he would, his tactic would be out of a crowd of thousands. He would hone in, spot one girl and stare at them intensely and then approach them the first moment that he could. And a lot of times he wouldn't even ask their name. Um, he would come to me and he would uh, not even really, of course he didn't have to introduce himself, but he would not ask my name. And he would just be like, have you ever thought about coming to headquarters and working? I want you at headquarters. Um, and so we, I received my first invitation to come to headquarters at 13. Um, he asked me to quit school and go up there. Headquarters was in Chicago. So he wanted me to work full time at headquarters um, in ministry with him. And to be asked to go to headquarters was considered the highest honor in ATI. Um, especially for uh, a young woman to be asked to go there because Bill was so revered. Um, parents, most of them just trusted him implicitly. And so the idea of, oh my goodness, the Bill Gothard has asked for my daughter to go up to headquarters and to serve with, in ministry with him. I mean, you just could not get any higher of an honor than that. Um, so most parents were really swept away by that and happily sent their minor daughters to live there. And if you worked at headquarters, even in the days of cell phones, you weren't allowed to have a cell phone. You were not allowed to have contact with at home unless it was in the presence of Bill. So sometimes you were allowed like one phone call a week to your family and it had to happen in Bill's office with Bill's phone as Bill was listening to you. And so um, individuals who were having a terrible experience, sometimes they were being severely abused at headquarters or other IBLP facilities. They were told by IBLP um, staff that they um, it was wrong of them to give a bad report 
is the language that was used. So it's like, it doesn't matter if you were just beaten by one of the staff members and locked up in a prayer room for six weeks and half starved. You are being disciplined. It's for your own good. And you need to give nothing but praise when you have a phone call with your parents, your weekly phone call. So, I mean, it's just, I look at that back. I look back at that now and I realize how unbelievably toxic that was that parents would have this amount of trust in this organization and they would be okay with that amount of limited contact with their children. Um, But that's part of being in a cult is you just don't spot how isolating it is and how extreme some of these requirements are because you're willing to do whatever it takes to earn approval within the organization. I guess I, I want to ask you a little bit more about your, your experience there, but the, I, this is probably the toughest question I have. So feel free to, to not necessarily answer it. But one of the teachings that just shook me, I guess, to my, my core to, to learn about, and I think that they mentioned it in the documentary, uh, I, I've definitely talked to, to others about it, is just the thought that you know, everything that happens to you is God's will and, and you only, things only happen to you if... Uh, God thinks that you can handle it basically. And part of the teaching specifically talked about how if you were sexually abused, if you, you know, had all these things happen to you, that it was almost a blessing from God because he thought that you could handle this. So people, they almost taught, you know, young people, young women and young men that being sexually abused is actually a good thing almost because it meant that you could handle it. So given that, you know, that was some of your experience, how did you rectify that given you knew that this is not a good thing this is something that was terrible for you but then your teaching was telling you that this is something you should be happy about you should you should feel that god was was giving you something that you can handle i i just i can't imagine going through something like that to be honest yeah it's a very warped teaching and extremely dangerous um Bill asked me for six years to come up to to headquarters before I did finally consent. Uh, so I went up at 18. And when I was up there at 18, he went through the sexual abuse material with me because he knew I was being abused by my father. Um, and of course, Bill was also sexually grooming me. Um, it was less obvious to me at that point, but that was also going on. Um, and so their sexual abuse counseling material, as they call it, um, is this graph where it's a set of circles and the outermost circle is the body. And then there's a smaller circle inside of the soul. And then the smallest circle inside that is the spirit. And we are told that the spirit is the most essential part. Your body is the least important part. And so when you are being sexually abused, that person is only harming your body. And we are told that we should dedicate our bodies to God. And so when we think about our bodies were sexually abused, we say, well, it's not my body, it's God's body. In other words, I, they, they, they want you to say that I'm not affected by the abuse anymore. It's no big deal because it didn't actually happen to my body. It happened to God's body. And so I don't take offense over that very warped teaching. And so we were told that since the spirit is the most important part of you, we were told that when you're sexually abused, the most dangerous thing is if you become bitter 
in your spirit and that that's what's really going to destroy you. And so you're supposed to look at it as God, um, God lets you be sexually abused so that you become quote mighty in spirit end quote. Um, so this was a very common phrase that got tossed around a lot. And it basically meant like you're more spiritual than other people. Um, you're handpicked by God as this like Im- incredible warrior and God has all these amazing plans for you. You're so mighty in spirit because of all the physical abuse that was done to the body that you dedicated to God. So messed up just when I try to explain this. Um, but I, I remember hearing this as an abuse survivor myself and I wanted healing. I wanted, I wanted, ooh, I don't like that word. I wanted, um, I just wanted the pain to go away. I wanted peace. And to be told that your body doesn't matter was crushing to me. And to be told, it's fine. You could just give your body to God and the pain will go away. I knew that that wasn't reality. And then to be told that to be sexually abused is actually a coveted thing because it makes you more spiritual. That just makes the pain even more because then you feel guilty about the pain that you're feeling because you're supposed to be grateful for it is what you're told. So you have all that going on in the background. And on top of that, Bill also instructs survivors to write letters to their abusers, thanking the abuser for the abuse. So I was instructed to write a letter to my father and say, thank you, father, for molesting me as a child, because that made me mightier in spirit. And God is using that. <laughs> that yeah. I, I don't even, I don't even have words. And you know, earlier you talked about how you were just completely consumed by by this teaching and still believed it so wholeheartedly at this time. You know, I, I just can't imagine being told all these things, being told to write a letter and also realizing how messed up this was. That's why it's so crazy to me. Hmm. Um, I think inside my gut knew it was wrong. Yeah. Um. But I was also so eager for that peace and for the pain to go away. And you have to realize my, bo- my, my father was still abusing me at this time. It didn't stop until I think I was 21 when he left. And so really, I was looking not only for peace about what had happened in the past, but I was looking for the abuse to stop now. And that's why I ended up going up to headquarters. My mom went with me and we went up there. We were only there for 10 days. We were supposed to be there for longer, but we cut it short. And during that process of being up there, the whole point, the whole point of my mom taking me to headquarters was she told Bill, we need to teach Emily how to deal with the abuse. Because, and I I know that sounds like I'm, vilifying her but i have grace for my mom because she was raised in a cult too meaning she was in ivlp and she was stuck in that mindset because in ivlp divorce is just about the most egregious thing that you can do and you might remember in shiny happy people there was another participant in that film who um, his father went to prison for sexually abusing one of the children and his mother did not divorce. 
And she was praised within the organization of look at this strong woman who's standing by her husband, even while he's in prison. And then they continued on their marriage after he got out. And so that's the example that was given to women of you don't divorce, even if your husband commits a crime and is going to prison for it. Um, And so for my mom, I don't think she she had such a warped view of what sexual abuse was. She did not understand at the time that my father could go to prison or should go to prison for what he was doing. She did think that he was doing what would be considered inappropriate behavior. That was a buzzword in IBLP. We never called it rape. We never called it molestation. We called it inappropriate. In other words, it's a sin, not a crime. So in her mind, she's thinking my husband is, doing sexually inappropriate things and this is a spiritual issue and so the church needs to deal with it but it's also having a devastating physical effect on my daughter and so we need to figure out since I can't leave my husband we need to figure out a way for the stress not to affect my daughter physically that was her intent for bringing me to headquarters and like I said I have grace for her because I I I have compassion realizing the desperate situation that she felt like she was in and she thought she was doing the best thing she could for me at the time with the knowledge uh, that she had it doesn't make it right it was still 100% wrong but I still have compassion for the situation she was in that saying that's why I was at headquarters and that's what made Bill's counsel even more painful was I was still living in this abuse and I wanted it to stop because it was physically killing me. I lived in constant chronic pain and I was constantly being emotionally and verbally abused and I wanted it to stop. And Bill's constant answer was give up your rights, write thank you letters to your father, bless your father. Um, I was told to write a list of all the things that I wanted from my father. And I wrote this list that included, I want my father to love me. I want my father to not uh, strike me, to to um, show that he actually cares for me more than his computer. I mean, I wrote this long list and then I gave it to Bill and he said, okay, so the way that you deal with this is you take all these things, which he considered expectations. He's like, you have all these expectations of how you want your father to treat you. You give those expectations to God and then all your pain will go away, Hmm. which is not how the human brain works. (laughs) But that's how I was told to deal with the active abuse situation going on in my home, which just release all your expectations, turn into a robot, don't care anymore, and write thank you letters to your abuser. So that's where we're going to leave it at this week. Just, I, I'm, this is the point of the conversation that I'm just absolutely flabbergasted, just dumbfounded by the things that she had to deal with. Writing a letter to her father, to her abuser, thanking him for basically the abuse for making her stronger and closer to God. I I just can't fathom the mental fortitude that that she had at that time to 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 do that and to know that you know this is wrong. Anyone in the in the right mind realizes this is wrong, but she just you know this this organization had such a grasp on her that she she was she did these things. So like I like I said in the beginning, I think that this story is just so powerful and so hard to to listen to that we need just a breather. Whew, we're going to take a break and uh, next week we're going to pick back up. 
we're gonna you know cover the the I guess the the rest of of this part of the story and the things that uh, what is what does IBLP actually do to you know the people who are abusing? Of course, we're going to find out that that not a lot, and some of the things are are, are pretty uh, pretty much just a slap on the wrist. We'll talk about about that. Uh, we're going to uh, to get to her time in. Uh, at headquarters in Chicago with IBLP and, and the abuse that she suffered with Bill Gothard. Uh, we're going to talk about how, while she was still in the organization, she joined a lawsuit against Bill Gothard, how that was possible, the results of that. We're going to get to some, some amazing things she's doing now when it comes to her organization, where she's helping other women who are dealing with abusive situations people who are dealing with abusive situations with that added layer of being in a, in a cult or in a, a fundamentalist group. She's just, she's doing so many awesome things. You know, this is a, a tough story. There's no doubt about that. But what has kind of risen from, from the, the rubble of, of some of this, you know, barbaricness is a really, really awesome thing. And Emily is, uh, you know, awesome for, for doing that. And, uh, and she's just she's awesome for for sharing these things. You know, this is this has to be tough for her to talk about too. But you know, it's important for her to to let others know. You know that they're they're not alone, and also to to maybe be a wake up call for people to hey, it's time to time to get out, or hey, maybe I'm in something that I shouldn't be, and let's 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 get myself out of this. So I I just cannot thank Emily enough for for joining me this week. And, uh, and, you know, she's, she's back next week as this conversation continues on. So, uh, I know that she'll be back next week because her, her story is just such a, such a, a powerful one, such a, and I say the word powerful so much, but my goodness, I, uh, I, I don't know any other way to describe my, you know, this conversation. So I, I know that she'll be back. Um, I won't, I won't say all the, the endings that I normally do, uh, because we've got a lot more to cover next week with Emily, but I do urge you to subscribe and to follow, whether you're on Apple or Spotify, subscribe, follow this podcast. Um, that way you know when that next episode comes out. And, uh, and you don't miss anything there because I promise next week is, you know, starts out tough, uh, but it ends just, uh, you know, with, a, with some triumph. So I, I, I know that you're going to, to want to hear the, uh, the rest of, of Emily's story and, and, uh, and what she's, she's up to now and what, what the future holds for her. So do subscribe, do follow along. The links to Thriving Forward, uh, her organization will be in the show notes here too. Uh, her social media will be there. Go check those out. Uh, that way you know Emily just a little bit better before next week. Uh, go check us out too. All of the links to uh, the social media of this podcast will be there as well. So yeah, we'll see you, we'll see you back here next week for, for part two with, with Emily Elizabeth Anderson. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.